Good morning, everyone. We are in John chapter 7, and we're looking at the last half of that chapter, verse 25 through verse uh, 52. And the setting already is in Jerusalem. Remember, Jesus went back to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. He's there for the second time. And he is, again, confounding the wise of the world with his truth that he has received directly from the Father. And there's lots of tension happening right now in the city of Jerusalem based on his disrupting the cart of typical Jewish religion. And so we see him today, again, demonstrating himself as the Messiah, the overcoming God King. And that theme is running through the entirety of the book, and I don't think I even have to mention to you what that means anymore, because for about three months, you have heard it every week, Jesus, the Messiah, he is the overcoming God King, meaning that he is the one who brings satisfaction to the hearts of his people, not through obedience to the law, but through his obedience to the law, that we might have life everlasting and change from a condition of sin and death to a condition of holiness, righteousness, and life. Amen? Amen. Uh, many, many years ago, one of the very first books that I read was by C.S. Lewis called Mere Christianity. Now, I've read probably 10 or 11 of his books, and that still is one of my favorite, Mere Christianity. And in that book, he presents not an argument for the existence of Christ and the existence of God, but demonstrates how logical and consistent a belief in Christ is when you think of the options. And he presented this idea that when you look at the person of Christ as he reveals himself in Scripture, you have three options when it comes to who Christ is. You can either see him as an all-out, bold-faced liar, that everything he's talking about is a lie, or he is an absolute lunatic. He is out of his mind. He has no idea what he's talking about. He's just a crazy person, or he is indeed Lord. You have those three options when you look at Christ. He's a liar, making it all up, deceiving people. He's a lunatic, or he is indeed Lord. Or another way of saying that, he is either mad, bad, or he is indeed God. And Lewis presents that through a couple chapters and shows how inconsistent it would be for him to be a liar, how inconsistent it would be for him to be a lunatic, and how inconsistent it would be for him to be mad or bad, that he is indeed Lord and indeed God. And we're seeing that this morning, starting in verse 25. We're going to look at that first little section, verse 25 through verse 31. And again, Christ is in Jerusalem. He's having a lot of interaction with people. He's having a lot of interaction with the religious leaders. And he moves on to the next section, verse 25. Some of the people in Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom we seek to kill? Remember, everyone is either accepting him as Lord, accepting him as some kind of prophet that they don't fully understand, or they simply want to kill him. They simply want to kill him because the message that he presents is a message contrary to religion, contrary to the established system of rules and regulations that the Jewish leaders have not only believed in, but have promoted for hundreds of years, distorting God's truth. 
and their power is threatened. Their livelihood is threatened. Their prestige and honor is threatened. If Christ's message is true, that you can approach God through a Savior and only through a Savior, not of your own merit, not of your own works, not of your own obedience to the law, but through Christ and Christ alone, the sacrifice, it destroys their power over the people to control them with obedience, shame, guilt, and power. And so they seek to kill him. And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know that there is a man who comes, and when Christ appears, no one will know where he is from. So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, you know me, and you know where I am from. But I have not come from my own accord, but he who sent me is true, and him you do not know. What a scathing accusation that Christ presents to the people he's talking to in Jerusalem. You know where I come from. You're making a big deal out of it that I'm a Nazarene, that I come from Galilee, that I'm from Nazareth, that I'm the son of a carpenter. You make a big deal that you know physically where I was born, but you really don't know where I come from. I come from heaven, and I speak the words of the Father. I don't speak on my own behalf. I'm not promoting myself. I don't need myself pat on the back in order for me to know I've done a good job. I'm fulfilling God's job by being faithful and honest and truthful with what the Father has given me. But you don't know him. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. He clearly tells the people, you have all this religious spectacle about yourself, all the bells and whistles, smells, and so forth, but you don't know the one true God. You don't know the Father. How do you think, just without reading any further, how do you think the people responded to Jesus telling them they don't know who God is? Yeah, they want to kill him. They always want to kill him. They never want to submit and bow the knee, humbly confessing their sins and acknowledging they need Jesus. They just want to kill the messenger. I mean, think about it. He's telling these religious Jews that can trace their genealogies back a thousand years to the days of David or further to the days of the judges or further to Moses or further to Abraham. And Jesus flat out tells them, you don't know God. That would be insulting. Those are fighting words. It'd be like me telling you, you don't know anything about America. You don't know anything about democracy. You don't know anything about freedom. You're like, hey, Tim, <laughs> I know a lot about freedom. I know a lot about the cost of freedom. I know a lot about America. Who are you to tell me I don't know the true identity of what America is all about? Or it'd be like me telling you, in a joking manner, please don't, don't get me, a joking manner that New Mexico, you know where this is going, New Mexico hatch chilies are better and more genuine to what a chili is than Pueblo has ever seen. Ah, aha, got your attention. Can you imagine me going to the chili fest in September and wearing a shirt New Mexico chilies rock. I'd be, people would throw rocks at me, right? Why? Because I'm going into your hometown, 
my hometown, and I'm ridiculing it. And that's what their perception was. Jesus is coming into his hometown, and he's ridiculing what makes them unique and special amongst all the world's people. They are God's chosen people, and now you're telling me, I don't even know God? Who are you to say that, Jesus? So they were seeking to arrest him, it says in verse 30, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. So even though they wanted to arrest him, even though they wanted to kill him, however this happened, they were unable to get to him. They were unable to lay a hand on him. They were unable to grab a hold of him and say, you're coming with me to the chief priests and the Sadducees and you're going to be tried. And all John tells us is it wasn't his time yet. It wasn't his time for what? To be arrested and brought before a tribunal and killed. It wasn't his time yet. And so they were unable to go against God's will, even though they had a lot of passion and anger and frustration towards him, they couldn't do anything to him because Jesus is not yet ready for the cross, not yet ready for the trials, so they couldn't lay a hand on him. Yet, and I imagine this verse 31 bugged the Pharisees and Sadducees completely, completely bugged them when he said, when John says, yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appear, will he do more signs than this man has done? So they're understanding the Messiah is going to come and he's going to show himself greatly to the people and do miracles. And they're thinking to themselves, what else does this guy have to do? I mean, we heard the story of him walking on water. We heard the story of the boat miraculously being on the other end of the shore. We ate the bread and the fish that he multiplied by simply blessing it. We saw a paralyzed man walk and carry his bed. And yeah, he got in trouble for that from the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees and all the religious leaders. We saw him and heard stories of him healing people from death without even being there. And we have heard him talk about the words of eternal life especially the woman at the well who had her life revealed but graciously revealed because mercy and forgiveness was presented to her. Hope was presented to her. And the entire city came out and heard the gospel and many believed. And so they're thinking to themselves as they're hearing Jesus and they're hearing all the religious leaders speak against him and they're thinking, what else does the guy have to do? What else does Jesus have to do for you to believe in him? What else does it have to say for you to acknowledge him as your Savior and Lord? I'm asking you that question. What else does he have to say so that you would be quick to forgive those people that hurt you? What else does he have to say for you to believe and have hope that when you die, he has you? What else does he have to say to tell you that anger is really a bad thing? That envy and jealousy and pride is not something you should adorn yourself with. What else does he have to say to put the importance of meditating upon his word in your heart? What else does he have to say? Because we can quickly, quickly and rightly judge and condemn those religious leaders of Jesus' day saying, man, you got it all wrong. He's the perfect package and you rejected him. And all along, we can have moments where we read Scripture and say, you know what, 
yeah, that, that's tough. I'm just going to ignore it. Or you don't understand how hurtful that person was towards me. I can't forgive them. Or you don't understand how proud I am of myself doing this. Everyone should acknowledge that. And see, we're in that same situation sometimes where we have to ask ourselves, what else does he have to communicate to us before we follow him, obey him, love others, love him as he's loved us? Of course, there's nothing because the answer is he is God. He is the Messiah, the overcoming God King. Everything he says and communicates to us should be life to us should bring happiness and joy and contentment and peace, and we should surrender ourselves. The moment he says any syllable, we should surrender and say, where can I change? How can you increase and I decrease? How can you be more important and I am less important? How can you give me strength that lasts the entire day? How can you help my failures? How can you forgive me? We should be so quick to approach God with all of those things because he's revealed himself to be the overcoming God King. He overcomes not just death and the devil, but he overcomes us. Who else can do that? What else does he need to do and show you that he is worthy of your worship, worthy of your prayer, worthy of your attention, worthy to follow him? What else does he have to say? What else does he have to prove? What miracle does he need to perform for you to say, I need to be serious about this Christian life once and for all? I need to follow him. And not just the following him as just a general Christian that has general morals, but as someone who is on fire for the things of God, no matter what the world may throw at us. The world was throwing murder at Jesus, and he continued to speak the truth in love and with conviction and sometimes very sharply. But he did not hesitate, and neither should we hesitate from following him. Well, the religious leaders had a little bit of problem with all of that. And so in verse 32 through verse 36, we see how the religious leaders respond to Jesus yet again. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, all these things about, uh, you know, what else can he do? He's got to be the Christ. We need to arrest him. He's threatening us. He's speaking against Moses. How dare he do that? I think he'd even speak against Abraham. How dare he might do that? He's talking about God being his father. We don't even know the father. What can we do? So the Pharisees are hearing all these little mutterings and murmurings and conversations. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Now, yes, Rome was totally in charge of Jerusalem. Rome was ruling that entire land. But Rome also were incredibly smart conquerors. I don't approve of what they did, but they were very smart conquerors. So what they did in Jerusalem, because Jerusalem was a hotbed of rebellion, they gave the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of Jerusalem, religious ruling council of Jerusalem, power to arrest people, especially if they were causing religious problems. The Romans didn't want to deal with any of that. We see later on in the life of Christ during the last week, Rome didn't want to have anything to do with this. They just wanted to appease the people so they did not revolt. So part of that process is Rome gave them the right and ability and authority to arrest people, especially when they were having religious 
uh, problems because Rome did not want that to grow into a further larger rebellion as it had about 150 years before the time of Christ uh, during the rebellions of the Maccabees. Totally different story. But the religious leaders had some power. They had some men that could do the arresting. So they actually said to themselves, let's go arrest Jesus. And Jesus, in verse 33, said to them, I will be with you a little longer, and when I am, and where, and, let me start over. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. Now he's talking about he's going back to the Father. And we know from the rest of the story, he goes into Jerusalem on the final week of his life during Passover. He is arrested. He is tried. He is convicted. He is murdered upon the cross. He is buried, and he raises, is risen again in three days, and then over time meets with his disciples and then eventually ascends back into heaven and gives the disciples, us, the charge to take this message to the whole world, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching people how to be disciples, teaching people how to love God and love one another, teaching people how to be servants and warriors for Christ. In the meantime, he is there ruling and reigning in heaven, waiting for the day when he returns in absolute military victory over everything, everything that denies him and challenges him. Nothing will stand in the wake of his judgment. But he says, I'll be with you a little longer. He still has about a year, maybe a year and a half at the most. And then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. And the Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go with this dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? And what does he mean when he says, You will seek me, and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. The religious leaders are so caught up in The religious leaders have a major problem. Their pride, their self-importance, and their arrogance about who they are, who they were born from, and their genealogy has them so consumed that anyone that threatens it, they won't listen to the message. They attack the messenger. All Jesus is saying is, hey, when I am done with what I'm supposed to do here on earth this time, I'm going back to the Father. And if you reject me, you'll have no part of me. If you reject my message, you have nothing to do with me, you have nothing to do with the Father, and you will not be with me. You'll be separate from me. You'll be distant from me. You will have no part in the Father or the Son or in anything that Abraham has or Moses has or David has. You'll have none of that. You'll be without anything. There is a sense in which Jesus is absolutely clear that where he is going after the cross, no one's going to be able to follow him until he returns. And there is a sense in which they can search for him all they want. They can search for his body, they can search for him, and they will not find him because he's in heaven where he is right now, ruling and reigning until he returns on that great and glorious day when all things will be made new. 
Jesus, hearing all this, listening to all this, responds. And responds with perhaps not the way we would. And it's beautiful that Jesus does not respond the way we would. Because we would respond by giving evidence and facts on who we are and why we're right and why they're wrong. Jesus instead responds with one of the more beautiful messages in the entirety of the book of John with hope. Now he ties this in to John chapter 4 where he's talking about or talking to the woman at the well, the Samaritan, the one who is very opposite of Judaism. And if you remember, he goes to that well when all of his disciples are gone into the town, and he asks this woman for water, and the woman comes back and says, first of all, you're a Jew, why are you talking to me? Secondly, you have nothing to draw from, how are you going to get water? And, and you're asking me, you, you shouldn't do that. You are so going against the rules. Stop going against the rules. And then he talks to her, reveals to her her life, and then shares with her that if you had asked me, I would give you water that would quench your thirst forever, saying, if you knew who stood here and the words that I have to communicate and what I can offer you, you would be at my feet, worshiping, bowing, and listening. And you would be receiving from me the waters of living life and you would never thirst again. And her mind goes, this would be great. I'd love to have that water so I'd never have to come back to the well and draw again. It's a lot of work. Still not totally getting it. And then in the end, she starts to get it. And the whole town comes back out and listens to him for days, and they believe him. In John chapter 4, that story. So in light of that, I believe he's thinking directly to some of that conversation that he had to the woman at the well in Samaria. Verse 37 through verse 39. On the last day of the feast, the last day of the Feast of Tabernacle, which was seven to eight days long, depending on when Sabbath happened, that great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. The fullness of that, the completeness of that takes, uh, takes place on Pentecost in the book of Acts chapter 2. But until that moment, Jesus had clarity with that message that this living water, this way to be satisfied eternally satisfied and fully satisfied was to believe in him, was to believe his message, was to look at the options. Is he a liar? Is he a lunatic? Or is he indeed Lord? And when you settle on, he is indeed Lord because the other two are inconsistent with Scripture, inconsistent with the message of salvation, inconsistent with life, inconsistent with the resurrection. He's Lord. And if he's Lord... We are called and drawn to believe him, to believe his message, to believe his process to get to the Father through faith and faith alone. We are to believe his miracles, demonstrating he has power. We are to believe him. Every word that comes from his mouth is truth. Not opinion, not advice, 
not good sage advice, but it is truth that cannot be changed, cannot be altered by culture or voting or the latest stats. It is truth. Once and for all, we have someone speaking to us with clarity that is truthful. Truthful about our own hearts, truthful about our own attitudes, truthful about our own faults, truthful about our own hope, truthful about God, truthful about how to understand the prophets, truthful about how to understand our future. He is truthful, and he calls people to believe in him. And he makes that promise that when we believe in him, we will receive the Spirit. We will receive the down payment that this is true and sure, and I have been changed from death to life. I have been adopted by the family of God, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives through me. There's been a change that took place where I was supposed to die for my own sin. Christ died on my behalf. All of that is caught up in those words, believe in me, and you will have life. Believe in me, and you will have hope. Believe in me, and you will be resurrected on the last day to glory. Believe in me, and you will be part of the family of God. Believe in me, and you will start to understand with clarity what I'm talking about. It will no longer be hidden from you. It will be obvious to you. Well, Jesus is really echoing the words that we find throughout Scripture numerous times in Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel 47, and Jeremiah chapter 2. It all talks about the Spirit and water and river and life flowing from the message of God to his people in a way that is special and unique that only Christ can give. And Christ says, this is the time. And he wanted clarity in all of this. And so he stood up and shouted this message. Was he afraid of being arrested? Doesn't look like it. Was he afraid of being arrested, tried, convicted, and murdered? He wasn't afraid of that. Why? Why was he not afraid of what the world could do? The world could be mean to him. They could say bad things about him. They could make jokes about him. They could ridicule him. They could throw things at him. They could whip him. They could beat him. They could spit on him. They could crucify him. And he wasn't afraid. Why was he not afraid of the world? Why was he not afraid to speak up and shout the message of hope? You might say, well, Jesus was unique. He's God. I mean, he could go like this and they'd be gone. We're not like that, Tim. When people make fun of us, it hurts. You don't think it hurt Jesus? When people throw things at us, we could get hurt. You don't think he was hurt when they beat him? You don't think he was hurt when they put that crown of thorns on his head? You don't think he was hurt when they struck him and whipped him? Of course he was. He was human. Had flesh and bones and breath just like we do. You don't think it hurt when he was nailed to a cross? Of course it did. What made it different? There is no difference. He gives us the same spirit. We have the same relationship with the Father. We're one of his children. We can endure everything the world throws at us because we are not tied to this world. We are citizens of heaven, 
And we have such a blessed hope that is in front of us. But we can get so scared at times that the world will make fun of us, cancel us, and put us in a dark room somewhere and forget about us, that we are afraid to stand up and shout the truth. Now, he also gives us direction. We have to do it in love and kindness, not out of spite or meanness. But we have the same Father in heaven that Jesus has in this relationship. And he's not afraid to tell the truth, even when the world is against him, even when Jerusalem is out to arrest him, even when the crowds cry out, crucify, crucify, crucify him. He doesn't care one bit because he's got truth on his side, God on his side, rightness on his side, and no matter what the world may do, they can kill the body, but they cannot destroy the soul. They cannot destroy the relationship we have. And that comfort and that truth led every martyr to their death with glory in their eyes, knowing that what the world can do can be horrifically terrifying and painful beyond imagination. But they cannot change the fact that my Savior rose from the dead and gives me that same promise. He cannot change the fact, the world cannot change the fact that Jesus is your hope, not this flesh and life, but he is. And when you believe in him, he presents to us and establishes in us that truth, the spirit and life and hope and satisfaction that I can surrender everything else that scares me to the Father and say, I can't handle this. I'm scared. I'm nervous. I want people to like me. I don't want to make waves. I just want to get through. And when we surrender that fear to the Father, the Father overwhelmingly gives us the courage and strength and wisdom to live in a way that honors Christ first and foremost. And that is what Christ did. He lived his life in a way that honored the Father first and foremost. Same thing we're called to do. And he gives us the power to do it. But we can only do it at the starting step of believing him, trusting him, having faith in him. Well, he's the one who stood up and shouted this. He made it crystal clear to everyone who was listening how to get hope and satisfaction in a relationship with God. And so there is no doubt in verse 40 through the end of the chapter, verse 52, how the people reacted. When the people heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Some of the people heard this and acknowledged, this is the Christ. This is the Messiah. This is a guy who is speaking truth from God. Others said, this is the Christ, the Messiah, that promised one to Adam and Eve, again reiterated to, uh, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all through the kings and the prophets. The whole Old Testament pointed to this person, Jesus Christ. And so some acknowledged and saw, not only is this person speaking from God as a prophet, but he is the promised one. He's the one we've been waiting for. He's the one who will take my place. He's the one who will rid me 
of the rote obedience to the law as a way to measure myself to God. He is the one who will reveal holiness. He's the one who will make us one with the Father. But there were others who said, is this Christ to come from Galilee? They're still so caught up in the physical things about who Christ is and what he was supposed to do from their own perspective and their misunderstanding of Scripture that they're questioning, can this guy really be coming from Galilee? I mean, shouldn't they be coming from somewhere important like Denver or Boulder? I mean, shouldn't our Savior for Colorado come from Boulder? No? Maybe I got that wrong. I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, Trinidad. That's what I was thinking of. They should be coming from Trinidad. And we at Pueblo would go, oh, we're better than Trinidad. Come on. But what if the Savior came from Trinidad or Boulder? You see, these people had that same kind of thought in their mind. If they're not from us, from the important place, Jerusalem, then it can't be ours. Or Bethlehem, like the city of David. Oh, you remember the story when Christ was born? Where was he born? Bethlehem, the city of David. He is fulfilling the prophecies every step of the way. Verse 42, has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Yeah, I got ahead of myself. Exactly. He was born in Bethlehem. So there was a division among the people over him, and there's still divisions among people over who Christ is. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. He hasn't even been there a week, and already they've been in wanting to arrest him three separate times. Two times, just in the verses that we looked at this morning. The officers came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, who said to them, why did you not bring him? See, they're all sitting in their little council chamber, and they see, oh, the officers are coming in. There's no Jesus. Where is he? And the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. No one has the words of eternal life like this guy. No one, no one presents hope the way he does. No one shows faith the way he does. No one shows an understanding of Scripture the way he does. No one speaks like him. They were saying there's no way that we could have arrested him. And the Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees ever believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. So their response, no one speaks like him, was we, the 70 of us, are the super important spiritual people in Israel and we don't believe him. You look to the crowd, the crowd believes him. The crowd, accursed. I don't see anywhere where the Pharisees and all these religious leaders are dealing with the fact of his words. Deal with him as a person. Don't start attacking straw man arguments and making fun of him and, and um, dismissing him because the important people don't believe him. The people who know their sin believes him. The people who know they are without hope believes him. The people that know there's no pride in me, there's no way I can reach God, they believe him because he gives them hope. The people who are self-righteous, 
The people who believe they obey all the law, the people have no need for a physician. But the people who are sick, like the woman at the well, the people who heard him as he preached on the mountains, they knew they had sin and nothing could help them except his words of comfort and his call to believe. Nicodemus, though, who had gone to him before in chapter 3 of John, who was one of them, said to them. So he's one of the religious leaders. He spoke up. Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So Nicodemus doesn't out himself as a believer, doesn't communicate, hey, I met with him and I believe him too, and he told me to be born again. I didn't understand that, but I'm beginning to understand that right now. He said, hey, our law tells us that we have to be fair in this accusation that we're going to lay. And he simply says, our law requires us first to give him a hearing and learn what he is saying. So we can't find him guilty until we've talked to him. And what is their response? Oh, you're right, Nicodemus. Thank you so much for letting us know what the law requires. You're right. We may have prejudged this whole situation and been rash in our wanting to arrest him and murder him. You're right, Nicodemus. Thank you for reminding us of the rules. What is their response? You from Galilee too? Where did that come from? That came from a jealous, prideful heart that hates the truth because it challenges their position in life. And so instead of dealing with the law, they make fun of Nicodemus and throw him out with the radicals as well. You're from Galilee too? The beautiful thing is that in the end, in the end, fast-forwarding thousands and thousands of years, still yet in our future, Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, verse 10 and 11, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. There will come a day, and I want you ready for this day, when either our knee is bent by the sovereign power of God to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, or we humbly bend our knee because our brother, Christ displays himself in such glory and majesty that our natural reaction is to worship him. It will happen one way or the other. Your knee will be bowed and bent to acknowledge, or it will be a natural function of a heart that is sold to Christ, that is filled with living water, that is Spirit of God, and we will naturally bend our knee because we want to worship Him. Which kneeing and bowing do you want to do? Oh, I pray that it's one of willing service and love and appreciation and natural acknowledgement of wanting to worship Him and not being forced to. 
I fear that many of the Pharisees and the scribes that threatened Jesus in his day, they will acknowledge that he is not a liar, that he is not a lunatic, but that he is Lord. But at that point, the point of their last breath, it is too late. And that is why Scripture says today is the day of salvation. You believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. It is not potential. It is actual. When you believe in him, he's got you. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for showing us your Son, for sending him, for substituting ourselves with his sacrifice. Thank you, Father. Thank you for setting a day in our future where we will willingly bow our knee and acknowledge that you are Lord. And I pray that our responsibility today is fulfilled as we call others to believe in you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.